Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I am your host, Bob Sadowake. Today, I am joined by an incredible, globally-minded woman who has achieved extraordinary success on multiple platforms. Natalia Brzezinski is the former CEO of Brilliant Minds Foundation, an initiative that was focused on bringing together traditional, long-term business families and major tech founders to debate the convergence of humanity and technology. She also served as the CEO for the Brilliant Minds annual two-day leadership summit in the creative setting of Stockholm, where specifically chosen guests from the worlds of business, technology, art, music, and science met in a marriage of tradition and disruption, values and innovation to debate and create. Natalia is an experienced moderator, journalist, and communication strategist focused on building dynamic dialogue across numerous sectors and cultures. She held cutting-edge roles in the U.S. Senate press office for Senator John Kerry, the Huffington Post, and she served as a diplomat alongside her husband, the U.S. Ambassador to Sweden, from 2011 to 2015. In addition, Natalia served as an advisor to the U.S. Embassy in Sweden, focusing on the intersect of digitalization and diplomacy, innovation, and leadership. Natalia also hosted her own podcast series, The Brilliant Minds Podcast, a Spotify original and one of Spotify's earliest pieces of original content. She holds open and honest conversations with leading entrepreneurs, politicians, artists, activists that share a passion for leveraging creativity for impact. Natalia Brzezinski, welcome to Breaking Protocol. Bob, I'm going to bring you with me everywhere because I'm not sure who that that amazing lady is. <laughs> Thank you for the for the really generous introduction, and I have to say. I am so happy. We're Zooming right now. I'm in Washington, D.C., so we're far apart, but I still remember, and I actually looked at the photo right before um, we met on Zoom now, of when you came to Stockholm, and it was a beautiful day, and we stood on that patio, and we were conspiring about how we were going to make change in these really traditional roles, and we did. We really did. And you were, you know, you were in a much, much more conservative place than I was in many ways. So Sweden was digital and open. And I am so proud of you, Bob. Well, you thank you. Amazing things. And you really were historic. And you and Wally did such a great job. So well, you're, you're too it's kind. It's an honor to talk to you. You're too kind. You're too kind. You know, you've experienced an extraordinary amount of success in your life. None of which I'm going to say was handed to you because it wasn't. You know, I've read so much about your background and, you know, that provided me with some keen insight on what motivates you as a person, provide your entrepreneurial drive that you've embraced throughout, you know, all of your life. And there's so many things that we've got to talk about today. Yeah. But I do want to start back with a little history about Brilliant Minds and the Stockholm Symposium, mm. because I think it's relevant to everything that you've built on. And how did it come about? And and what was the goal moving forward? So I think like many things in life, especially today, it was a confluence of the right people, the right timing, and just kind of shared values. Um, I 
cannot believe kind of the the serendipity and the luck of us ending up in Sweden. I had actually, um, I had studied abroad in Copenhagen as a student and I had completely fallen in love with the Nordics. I had never been to the Nordics before. I remember we were one of the first universities on Facebook and I remember sending photos back on Facebook, like, look at the Danes. There's there's a rush hour of bikes. They're so sustainable. Like it was so interesting to me. It felt like everything that my generation was interested in and passionate about, you know, whether it was equality on the gender side or social equality or sustainability, like Denmark was really doing it right. (laughs) And then, you know, of course, later I landed in Sweden, which was just as if not more progressive. And so I think so much of that is landing in a place that was completely aligned with who I am and my values, and also more importantly, so completely aligned with a White House and a historic president that actually really believed in what these values were about, which, you know, Swedish values are human values. They're the values of the future. You know, what is a place where most women work, the young and the old are taken care of, people feel a responsibility and love for land and take care of them, preserve that land. I mean, it's it's something that we could all connect with. So, you know, I mean, I thank God and serendipity and everything that came in between to land there, you know, at the age of, I think I was like 26, you know, with a little baby, she was one and a half at that time. And a White House that really supported, and you know this, even though it was not easy, really supported modernizing diplomacy. We were really, if we did it in the right parameters, empowered to go and represent the president's values. And that was just so aligned with um, where we were and who I was as a person. And I think, you know, when when we think about embassies, I, I, I'll never forget, and it's very State Department language, but when we were going through our training, the one thing that stuck in my head, whether it was Secretary Clinton saying it or Milan Verveer or, you know, several other, Alec Ross, several other interesting speakers you get to hear, it was the power to convene, the power to convene. How can you bring people together? We have this amazing platform. You're literally living in a beautiful mansion with the support and the resources to bring really interesting people together to do great things together. I mean, that's like, that's leadership. (laughs) That's what societies are built on. And I think that I wasn't from DC. I grew up with very humble beginnings. My parents are immigrants from Eastern Europe, raised by my grandparents. They were always working. I mean, everything I ever did was just by going out and kind of going forward and doing it on my own. So landing in this embassy, I mean, I was like, my God, I have to do things. I have to make change. Like, it's irresponsible of me not to kind of leverage this platform, not for my own gain, but to help other people, to bring people in that aren't usually invited, to do things that aren't done. We were the first embassy to raise the LGBT flag, which I can't even believe happened that late. Um, right. We brought in, you know, so I can go on and on, and you know a lot of these things, but I think my background really made me kind of value it and see like, oh my God, there's no place in the world where I would end up in a U.S. embassy in a place under a historic black president. I'm from the South side of Chicago as well. You talked about the environment there. You talked about going to school in Denmark and you talked about the respect for the environment. You are a self-proclaimed environmentalist. And in today's political culture, specifically in the United yeah. States, you know, being an environmentalist can be a very dirty word and politically divisive. 
Absolutely. So, right? So what prompted you, what prompted you to title yourself with this label and why do you think environmentalism is so political? I mean, I think you know what I found interesting is that especially in the Nordics, but I think a lot of European countries, they don't have this, you know, and I, I hate this term, but the art of being a snake oil salesman. An American can sell anything. Like we're storytellers. We're full. <laughs> you know, they're not like that. You know, they're more yeah. like, look, look, I've made this amazing product called Skype or Spotify, but I'm not going to tell anyone because the the work will speak for itself. You know, it's almost the opposite of us. And when I got there, you know, I think that unfortunately, for some reason, environmentalism has been given kind of this wacky left, almost like what feminism was seen as. You know not so long ago as bra burning crazy women with armpit hair, you know, <laughs> same thing with environmentalism, like they're burning furs, you know, they're, you know, wacky. And I think it was interesting because I'm definitely an environmentalist for a different reason. I grew up with no land. I grew up in a pretty dirty city. Like we played in the alley and like it was, there was a train right behind me. You know, it was really sure. my husband that taught me, you know, he lived in Virginia. He he took me to the mountains. The Brzezinski's had a place in Maine. Like that was the first time in my life that I experienced that kind of environment. It was not socioeconomically given to me. That wasn't part of my ether. Like I didn't know that. But he was really interesting because when we landed there, you know, he was kind of hiding his passion around the environment. And I'm such a consummate storyteller. I think that's what life is about. If you want to mobilize people, it, connect with people, share, be vulnerable, tell your story. And he was really afraid in his early speeches, especially when he landed as ambassador, to tell personal stories about why he loves the environment. And I was like, are you crazy? <laughs> like, I don't know if it was a generational thing, like sharing, but he was taught if you want to be a serious foreign policy guy, you don't talk about yourself. You don't talk about personal things. You don't talk about your passion. What's that? It's about duty right. and responsibility and the government. And and I think the fact that Mark and I are different generations, you know, I really pushed him to kind of tap into that. And it became the thing that he loved most. You know, he worked on the Arctic there. Like, I think that would be his legacy of, of many things. And for me, it was like I had discovered this gem in life that I never had. And the way that the Swedes really like the way they look at the environment, it's not about kind of radicalism. It's really about community. Um, they have this idea that we all share this land. And so, for example, like it's legal and many people do it. If I'm a very wealthy person and I own an island in the archipelago, you, Bob, can come to my island and camp on my lawn. It would never happen. No, that's <laughs> fascinating. That's fascinating. You know, we both had a really interesting, interesting kind of evolution around the environment there. And it was amazing to be in a place where it's it's not CSR. It's not PR. You know, it's interesting that you talk about the culture being related to their passion yeah. for the land. I'm not yeah. sure if you're aware that, you know, I'm Native American. My heritage is I'm I'm a Cherokee. And the um, Native American, the indigenous people of this country, viewed the land in much the same way mm. as you talk so about the beautiful. culture of the Swedish. You know, while living in Stockholm, you had an opportunity, mm. I find this interesting, to meet the famous Swedish opera singer, Milena Ermann. And I only bring this up because Miss mm -hmm. <laughs> Ermann is the mm -hmm. mother of Greta Thunberg, who has achieved infamy 
on the environmental platform, and as a result, I might say, has been harshly, harshly criticized mm. at times. Now, if Greta had been a young teenage boy instead of a young teenage girl, do you feel the response to her activism would have been the same? I don't. I think that there was a there's a huge. I don't know how to even describe it. There's still this overwhelming feeling in society everywhere. It's kind of universal that little girls are vulnerable, especially, you know, little girls like she has depression. You know, how can they put her out? She's going to have a nervous breakdown. You know, she's not strong enough. We're not resilient enough. Like, let her be a girl. You know, I heard all kinds of things in the U.S. and in Europe because I had put her out as a speaker. You know, I had her early before she came to the U.S. And I also got the chance to, I both introduced her to John Kerry. Um, they met in Stockholm and I was able to watch and literally bring her over to meet President Obama for the first time in Stockholm in 2019. And to watch those two men, President Obama and John Kerry, speak to her with such dignity and respect and they didn't treat her like a little girl, that just made me kind of... <laughs> again, realize what amazing leaders they are. Like they looked at her like they want to learn from her and almost like, man, you're, you're bolder than I am. Um, and those are bold guys. So yeah. I never would have thought at this age and my daughter's 11, that it would still be like this, that right. someone like Greta would be criticized. I just, I don't understand it. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about women in leadership because while I was researching in preparation for this show today, I wanted to address specifically your diplomatic experience. And you once said in an interview that settling into a more public lifestyle, one where there is much less privacy and much more quiet scrutiny, was a challenge for me because I am a very open and communicative person, and I had to learn to censor myself a bit in certain situations. <laughs> now, I too am someone... That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> well, with all due respect, when I read that, I, I kind of chuckled, <laughs> I have to admit. You know, because I too am someone who's very open and willing to disseminate my thoughts publicly and understand the need to censor myself in certain situations as well. But as a woman, do you feel there's a higher level of expectation for women to remain silent or censor themselves? Oh my God. Yes. I mean, I still deal with it. Um, I think, oh God, where do I start? It's hard for me to say anything negative because in one way that embassy experience was the defining experience of my life. It was the defining chapter. It has made us not just profession, but it's kind of shaped us as a family, as people. So it was amazing. It was also re really, really hard. It was really hard. Well, but you were very young and you proved, you proved, despite your age, that you had the ability to engage in that diplomatic community. I mean, it, you know, I will not name names, but I think I even remember oh, when my husband was going, <laughs> I'll, name, I'll name other names, but I remember when he was going through through vetting. And I think I looked much younger than I was. Like, I think people were like, is she 19? Like, I looked really young at that time. And I remember someone asking him, like, are you sure your wife is old enough for this? And I was like, what the, you know, I, I raised myself. They don't know. But I mean, of course, there was yeah. a lot of that it was really hard. I had problems kind of I think people really resented supporting someone my age. Who does she think she is? She didn't earn this. They knew nothing about me. Sure. I was like, that was, I was slapped with that right away. You know, 
even just speaking up in general, those embassies are used to having the woman, the wife, greet them at the door and leave or not be present at all. I mean, I think one of my favorite stories, and if you don't mind, I will just say really quickly because it was defining for me as well because it was scary, um, was one of the first events an ambassador always holds is like, you know, a round table or something with the main business people in Sweden. Sure. And, and, the, and in Sweden, I mean, it's the land of H&M and Ericsson and Ikea. It's a very robust business community. And I remember this particular event was a round table. I had like, you know, I was way over, too dressed up. I had too much makeup on. I immediately, like I was the only woman. There was, I think the only person probably under the age of 55, other than my husband, literally a table of, you know, gray haired men. And that's even mm -hmm. unusual for Sweden. So that's another story. But it was really, really interesting because they all looked at me like, is this the intern? Is she assisting the ambassador? What's she doing here? Right. And then I remember Mark saying, can you please like go around and introduce yourself? And it's like the CEO of X, the chairman of X, the CEO of X. I'm like, oh my God, what am I going to say? Like, <laughs> who am I? And they finally got around to me and I said, you know, I'm Natalia Brzezinski and I'm going to make sure you and all of your companies advance women in leadership positions. And their mouths fell open. And like, all of a sudden they're like, oh, I want you to come visit me at this company. Come to my company here. I do a lot on women. Like just by that one statement, which I don't even know where it came from yeah. <laughs> because I was so nervous and I felt so diminished actually. Well, let me ask you this based on that story. You also said in an interview that politics is very conservative when it comes to women. Mm -hmm. Now, I agree with that, but I'm going to go on to say something yeah. a little further here, and that is, in my view, the State Department is actually mm -hmm. archaic when it comes it's to women. insane. And specifically when it comes to diplomatic spouses of male ambassadors. Absolutely. I mean, I mean did, you, did you face that? I mean, you will love this story because it's very timely. I will tell you when, when <laughs> Mark, I mean, but this is an amazing story. And it's like funny that the timing is as it is. When Mark was named ambassador, we actually, right before we left, we went to the White House to visit Joe Biden, Vice President Biden, along with actually Mika and Joe. So they were witnesses. And we went in and kind of everybody greeted Vice President Biden. Then he looked at me and like, you know, kind of uproarious, like Natalia, you know, and was super warm. And then he said, your role is the most undervalued, but most important role. No other spouse, whether you're military, my wife doesn't have to do anything. Ambassadors, spouses or partners actually have to work. They have to. And they're totally undervalued. And he had said that he had actually submitted legislation to the U.S. Senate over time, and it was never approved to have ambassadors, partners, or spouses paid because, you know, other countries do that. Uh, many other European countries actually pay the spouse because you can't really work and you are working all right. the time and you're often Absolutely. Like, the best asset. I mean, the stories I heard, you know, when people started to hear that I was active, I would get like outreach from all kinds of ambassadors, spouses, and also ambassadors. Like, how did you get to do this? How did you get to do that? Like, tell me your secrets. Because I mean, I heard stories of ambassadors, spouses, not being allowed to go to events on their own. Not, I mean, I, at my age at 26, I was like, said to my husband, there is no way in hell I'm going to sit here and serve tea with, you know, the American Wives Club or NATO's Wives Club. Nothing wrong with it. But I don't even believe in a wives club unless you choose it. it all these kind of accoutrements around it were 
were crazy. And it was really, really, really hard to break it down to them. Well, well, let's talk a little bit about being an advocate for gender equality. Yeah. You know, in many ways, I look at that, that's also being an advocate for human rights in general. Absolutely. But what do you feel are the biggest hurdles the U.S. faces moving forward as it relates to these challenges? And do you think we can find a path of consensus among Americans as it pertains to gender equality? I mean, it is so, it's such a hard question. And I feel like I almost went through a stage where I was steeped in it. I did so much work in Sweden around it. And then like podcasts and different things. I did stuff well, with Mika. please don't walk out on me because I'm asking hard questions. No, I'm, oh, I'm done with you. No. <laughs> I actually have come to the, I'm, I'm Bob, you're, you're done for. I've, I've come to realize that at the end of the day, it's just going to take a lot of, I think I'm finally slowly getting to a position professionally where I have the power to lift up a lot of women um, and connect them and get them jobs. And, you know, I've always felt that there is no reason why I, Natalia Lopatnyuk, made a name, Ukrainian, out of Chicago, has access to presidents, CEOs, celebrities, music artists. It's, I mean, what am I going to do with all these people? I want to share them. I will introduce anyone. I'm not weird about that. Like a lot of people are very selfish with their network. Like, what are you hoarding all these people for? Like introduce them to interesting people. And so, I mean, people will reach out to me even on Instagram. There's not ever a time where I don't try to give advice, be a reference on a resume. Like, of course, not to complete strangers, but I really make that a part of my kind of existence. And it's so interesting because I always thought it was like a not a like a socioeconomic thing. Like, well, I would have never had this network without these experiences, but I'm sure there are young girls now coming of age and they maybe they have powerful fathers or their father's a CEO. It's funny, even those young women, it's so, we're so kind of, we're, we so don't fit into the old constraints of business. And those biz, those constraints are still very strong, even if it's in tech or whatever sector you're in. Those sectors are made for kind of men, traditional men, the way leadership is defined by male terms. And so even these, even if you have a great network, you need guidance to kind of be bold um, and like not care about how other people have done things. And I sound so confident now, but I've spent many nights crying in Sweden or like along the way or even recently, you know, one can get insecure because you are critiqued a lot if you're different, I think. And then I love that you said it's a human issue because you are critiqued for some reason. I think, and I say this to my daughter because I actually say I, you should take it as a compliment because you have the courage to actually be different. And most people don't. Most people just follow the same old path and they never kind of express, fully express and maximize who they are. And I think that's really sad. And I'd rather go down in flames than not do that. That's a great segue to my next question <laughs> because while you were living in Stockholm, You had two very high-profile visits while you were there. The Secretary of State came to visit, and the President of the United States came to visit. Now, having some personal knowledge on how these principal visits work and are engaged with in the -the behind-the-scenes work that it takes to implement (laughs) these engagements, just first of all, I'm going to say congratulations, because (laughs) you pulled that off with extraordinary success. And second for your initiative to be front and center alongside your husband in officially hosting those historical visits. Now, 
You know the name of my show is Breaking Protocol. <laughs> I love it. And you clearly broke a little protocol along the way. But give me <laughs> one really specific example where you just had to say, I am doing this. I, I I don't care that this is the way you tell me it's always been done. No. But Natalia's doing this. <laughs> oh, Bob, I did it on a daily basis. I mean, there were there were protocol chiefs that still hate me to this day there. So I'm like, I'm over it. But I mean, I'll tell you things that would come up. I mean, for example, and this she wouldn't mind for me to tell this story because it's actually a great story. So when we got there, the first <clears throat> minister of enterprise, so it's like a commerce secretary, um, the first fee she was the first female and she was really young too. Like if I was 26, she was like 29 at that time. And so I remember kind of like as Mark and I did research, I think I'm gonna seek that woman out. Her name was Annie Luff. Um and I remember trying to seek her out and it was still awkward, you know, because it was very protocol oriented. And at one point, you know, it was so funny, like I just went off and I started to engage in the tech community. I got my contract and I just, you know, did my thing. And I was, I remember going for a run around the park and I got a phone call and it was from her, from Annie Luff. And she was saying, you know, I, I just... I love what you're doing with entrepreneurship and like these tech guys. And, you know, I really want my department and the Ministry of Enterprise to focus more on that. But you know, we haven't done that before. And like, I don't even know any of these entrepreneurs. Can you help me? I was like, are you for real? <laughs> you know, are you, we're, we're breaking all kinds of protocol just having this discussion. But I said, yeah, let's host an event together. I'll invite them all. We'll do this. You would think people would think that's great. We had never even hosted her ourselves. Like right. they didn't, you know, and that time in Sweden, there wasn't that much crossover. A lot of the tech entrepreneurs used to say, you know, we're, we're invited more to Downing Street than like by our own. It was very siloed. And I think that's why I was also kind of a tornado in Stockholm because I was bringing <laughs> all, I was like breaking that up, you know, forget that you need to meet different people. But I remember that event caused so much consternation because she's not the ambassador. She has no right to host a sitting minister. Like the way they would say these things, and it, that came up a few times. The CEO of Coca-Cola came and I we helped organize an event for him around millennials and tech. And I wanted to interview him for the Huffington Post at that time. And he said, yes. And he was so excited about that also. She, what, what, under what auspices, what's she gaining out of this? She has no, she's not the ambassador. Or, you know, I'd invite over CEOs. Only the ambassador can invite over a CEO. Only the ambassador can reach out to, you know, the royal court or the queen, whoever, whoever. And I just went around that all the time. So, I mean, I think that's like 10 examples. But I think if we didn't do that, we wouldn't have done anything. And I will say, although not everyone liked it, I then had a team and they were not my team. I mean, there were many diplomats and I can't say the name like Jeff Anderson and many people more that completely supported me because when President Obama came, his visit was around shared values. It was like the collaboration of the Nordics. He did things, events around sustainability, female entrepreneurs. Like, and I remember sitting with my husband, like picking the, you know, he should do this. He should do this. I was really involved in that process. And I, I give it to Mark as well, because not many, I don't want to say men, but not many men right. <laughs> would allow that actually. Sure. Um, sure. Even though I don't even like, like, People have said that to me over the years. You're so lucky that Mark embraced that. And part of me is like, yeah, he's a great guy. And part of me is like, 
all men should, all spouses should embrace that. Like, right. what what kind of comment is that? So I'm undecided about how I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, moving forward, I, I want to switch gears for a moment and discuss what the single largest impact on human life is today. And mm. we've got to talk a little bit about coronavirus, the oh, geopolitical impact of COVID-19 globally, not only in the private sector's reaction, but how it's measured, imposed by national, regional, and local governments here in the U.S. has varied so dramatically. And in fact, I would say that there isn't a consensus on what actually measures the coronavirus itself, how one effectively controls the impact on all of us, uh, how we would implement those measures. And why do you think in the United States, COVID is so politicized based on your global experience and the perceptions that either we're portraying or not portraying to our global community? That's such a great question. And again, it kind of harkens back to something really interesting. Again, not to beat this to death, but I discovered it in the Nordics and especially in Sweden. Um, I remember asking different Swedish officials, you know, how, but how did Sweden like, like go about, you know, passing such progressive environmental laws, like such early, such progressive laws around women and voting and parental leave, you know, they've basically two years of parental leave. And I remember over and over the refrain was the same. And I, I think statistics still prove this, even though it has decreased Swedes and generally people in the Nordics have the highest levels of trust in their government than any other nation. So they might not think they're That's perfect and it is going down, but generally, if I'm a Swedish citizen, I generally believe that my my prime minister, my government is doing things in my benefit. I don't think they're gonna try to hurt me, steal from me, like take my family down, take my lifestyle away. I don't. I think that I'm putting, if I'm paying taxes, it's for the common good and this is you know positive for us. And I remember like thinking, my God, it's all about trust. And, and we don't have that. You know, that's right. tr that's why people don't want to pay taxes, because they don't trust that the federal government will use that money. Well, it's funny. I mean, I was listening to right as this broke out, I was listening to a podcast. And I think it was Ezra Klein, who had written a new book about polarization. And he said, he remembers when COVID started really breaking out. He was texting with friends. He said, either this is the one thing that will bring us together. If anything does, this is the one or it'll make us more polarized than ever. And unfortunately, it was the latter. Natalia, I've heard several politicians in the U.S. refer to Sweden's response to COVID in, in, that, in that, that they didn't shut down their economy. They didn't quarantine. You know, they didn't implement draconian measures on their citizens. Indicating the value of human life is not as valued in Sweden. From your observation of Sweden's local culture and government reactions— is this an accurate assessment? And at what cost do we sacrifice human life for the future of our global economy? Again, a great question. And I think that I think that it comes back to this central tenet and theme here of trust. It's not that they don't value human lives. They don't even think about it that way. That's our news media. And I can say this with family members in, you know, news media. <laughs> but I think, you know, that's a storyline in, you know, the U.S., in Sweden, people generally trust that my neighbor 
is going to be honest about where they've traveled, that they've quarantined. People actually do quarantine. There's, you know, people are socially distant. I think we started out, you know, as we were chit-chatting about that idea that some of us, like there's a lot of people, especially in big cities. And I was on, you know, a train recently and a fight broke out with kind of like older people about who was breathing on whom and who had lied about where they had come from on the stop before, like to the point of, you know, most blows. And I said, my God, like, we really, really, really don't trust each other at all. And they, they don't have that. They generally trust that, you know, their neighbor, their, their fellow mother or father who's bringing their kid to school because they're all in school is taking the right actions, is cautious. Well, tomorrow, the U.S. is going to elect a new president to serve for the next four years. And, you know, we have to talk about this Do you feel Americans' concern level to the global reaction of U.S. foreign policy is relevant to this election? I don't think Americans care about foreign policy, unfortunately. Um, I debate this with my husband all the time because he's from D.C. He's from this foreign policy think tank world. My... My parents vote very differently than I do. And a lot of people kind of in my neighborhood, something really interesting happened. I, you know, me like you, I like to meet people. I like to talk to people. I'm really curious about different kinds of people. And when I visited my parents, you know, two years ago, I first got my dog. He was a, he's a German shepherd. And I befriended like a bunch of German shepherd owners in this dog park. And, you know, (laughs) one's a hunter. One had a big hunting gear on. The other one was very Catholic, father of 10. Wow. Father of 10. So we would talk about that all the time. And this was just early on when President Trump had just been elected. And this father of 10 would say to me, you know, three of my kids think I'm homophobic. I'm not an evil man. Like it was eating him up. Obviously, there's interfamilial issues around it. And I hadn't heard from him a while. And he texted me out of nowhere this summer and said, you know, how do you feel about everything that's happening? Like, do you do you think that we are bad people for for voting a different way? Like, how do you square this? Because I can't take it anymore, even within my family. And I said, look, I have the same issues. And I understand that there are a lot of people, especially people who have had this kind of journey of struggle and sacrifice in this immigrant experience, like my parents or like where you came from, people that have had that and had to fight so hard. It gave up a lot, a lot of happiness, a lot of health. Relatives died for this certain life. And that's all they have. And they think someone's going to take it away. They really do. They believe like the left, they really do believe they're going to be entering like a new communism and no one's communicated to them in the right way. And I said, I understand that, but I think this is not sustainable and we've become a crueler place. And I think we were able to have this discussion and there's a lot of people like that. I think the more you poke at people and like, I not poke, but kind of get curious. Sure. The more you see that this is such a multidimensional issue, like there are people of mine that I see a lot that are like tech investors and cool and we laugh a lot and like we have a lot right. in common, but yet they vote differently than I do because of their pro-life or they're this or they, you know, it's, it's so diverse. And I think neither party has captured that diversity. People really think if you're Hispanic and you're from Miami, you're going to go this way, you know, and that's just not true. Politics is emotion. And we forget that. Yes, it's about policy, but that's secondary. It's emotion. And it's people want to feel safe, people want to feel heard, and they want to feel accepted. And I think we've had a lot of 
weird different times where people, a lot of people, I guess, didn't feel that way. You know, let me ask you this, having lived abroad and, and being someone who's clearly a global thinker, what's your assessment of the current interest level in the U.S. election from abroad and also domestically? Well, from abroad, I mean, it's like literally a TV show. You know, people cannot believe it. So there, I think people waver between they're fascinated and they like Americans, but they also have this image of like loud and exaggerating and, <laughs> bleh, you know, and so this is kind of bringing to fruition that stereotype. And they're right. like, ha ha, see, we knew it. This is what they're like. They're not like Obama. They're like this, you know, and, and people think it's entertaining and it makes them feel good about their own nation. And so in some ways, it's like the apprentice on steroids. And in some ways, I think, you know, if you really, really, really open your eyes, we're breaking up kind of friendships that it took 200 years to make. Like you were in an embassy. The work people don't see the work that goes into having a good relationship with a foreign country is enormous. Sure it is. <laughs> and sure. and it and you know you have to agree and disagree and kind of find common ground and that's not always easy. And so it's just so sad to see that. And I hope that I mean this is like such a deep issue, but I hope that we can also kind of continue programs. I think the biggest thing for Americans to not care about the world is they don't travel. They don't have the means to, I mean, I think it's, it's so interesting because it's the one thing, even when we had no money, like I always traveled, we went, stayed with relatives on couches. You know, I always knew the world was really big right? and it's, it's not forever. Not everyone feels that way. You know, it's interesting because what you're saying to me, if I'm interpreting this correctly, is that U.S. leadership despite who's in the White House, has grave impact in the global decisions oh, that are absolutely. made from leaders of other countries. We, absolutely. We, we do have this impact. We do influence the thought process of global leaders. Absolutely. But I think we've diminished ourselves for the first time, I would ever say. And I'm not an expert, but I remember hearing, you know, just anecdotally, like, over my experience of working with entrepreneurs in Europe, for example, all of a sudden, you know, it was always the dream to go to Silicon Valley and to get, like, if you made it in America, wow, if you got an investor from, you know, Palo Alto, that was huge. All of a sudden, it became more like, oh, Hong Kong or Asia or let's go that way. Oh, the scale is bigger. America's saturated. America's noisy. America's that you know, was really interesting. And I, I, I hope like, you know, and I, I believe we will always regain this amazing role in the world because we're really the only nation like us that kind of brings together all these different people. And even if it doesn't always work, it's still like, I think innovation comes out of chaos. Like when things don't come together, you have to find things that work. And, and it's a constant process of curiosity and evolution. So since you've made this transition back, you've made this transition to a U.S. lifestyle again. What's your, what's in your future? What are you currently working on? What's next for Natalia Brzezinski? Oh, man. Well, I'm really excited because I just started a new role at Klarna, which is Europe's biggest fintech company. And I love it because, you know, it's it's payments, it's you know, like PayPal or many of the other ones, but it also like many kind of of the best companies has this amazing vision to transform a whole sector. 
And it's an amazing founder that I've known for a long time from Sweden with strong values. So I'm really excited. I'm the head of strategy in the US, which is like the first time I can be really operational and kind of lead the, the, the strategy and the storytelling and like the direction um, in the US market, which is incredible because I think it allows me to take all this passion, all these things I've learned and continue to share that also in a business context, which I think is important because I think, you know, with everything we've said about politics, business is and will continue to be the strongest driver for a long time to come. You know this. I mean, there's so many track two dialogues. Business leaders are really important. They're an important influence on leaders around the world. Yeah, they absolutely. can make change internally. They can drive pop culture. They can drive young culture. We have a huge community of millions and millions of people like the biggest Gen Z and millennial community. I want to use that to drive change in positive ways. It's not about politics, just about great values and acceptance. And so I'm so excited about that. And who knows what will happen? Like, you know, best laid plans, Bob. I would have never thought we'd end up here. I would have never thought I'd be an ambassador's wife. (laughs) I was like, you know, I'm never getting married. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Then my husband's like, you should have never said that because you basically became famous for being a wife. (laughs) Like, oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> well, I should I should ask you the same question. I, I don't think you became famous for being a wife. I yeah. think you became <laughs> Thank you. famous for being extraordinarily entrepreneurial, for taking the bull by the horn, so to speak. And, you know, to quote a phrase that I like to quote for breaking some protocol. Natalia, it has <laughs> been truly a pleasure having you on my show today. Thank you Bravo. so Thank much. You, Thank Bob. you, Bob. Uh, you know, hopefully someday in the future, we can sit down again and do this in person. We're going to do it. I, I have faith. And thank Absolutely. you, listeners, for joining us and listening to this podcast today. Please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer, or you can download it to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Have a beautiful day and many blessings.